Hello, hello, and welcome to the Kings and Beatles Daily Deep Dive. I am your host, Tony Fry. This is episode 231, and today we are talking about Penny Lane by the Beatles. Um, and if my lighting seems off, I had to unplug my light to go grab my keyboard or my guitar and forgot to turn it back on, and now I'm half in the dark. But that only affects the few of you who are here live or watching on YouTube. If you are here live, I have a poll posted in our chat, so make sure you respond to that, and we will talk about it um, at the end. I'm already surprised by the results, actually. Interesting. All right. Um, before we get started, though, I do want to remind everyone we have a bonus episode coming out March or recording on March 26, 2022, where we're going to break down the best and the worst album covers by the Kinks, the Beatles and the solo catalogs. Um, that is a premium episode. So uh, invites are only going to the uh, folks that have contributed to the podcast is my way of thanking you. Um, everybody else is going to have to wait a couple months before they can watch it. So you will be able to see it eventually, um, but only those who contribute to the podcast will be able to participate live. And of course, you can contribute by swinging by herohabit.com slash shop, and you'll see everything there for podcast support. And then also swing by YouTube to subscribe, because um, this is how we're going to do the podcast from now on. So make sure that you subscribe and you can get reminders of when episodes that you'd be interested in participating in will be um, recording. All right, so today, like I said, we're talking about Penny Lane by the Beatles. It was released February 13th, 1967 um, as a double A-side with Strawberry Fields Forever. It was also released on the American Magical Mystery Tour LP on November 27th, 1967. It was a number one hit in the U.S., uh, but it became the first Beatles single to not reach number one in the U.K., due to the BBC's rules about uh, double A-sided singles. Now, the Beatles knew what this rule was, you would think. So it feels like a bit of self-sabotage because they had to have known that because of these BBC rules, the, the single was going to not hit number one. Because essentially half of the sales were credited to Penny Lane, half of the sales were credited to Strawberry Fields Forever. Because only the better selling side was counted. And I'm not clear on how they determined who bought for Strawberry Fields and who bought for Penny Lane. But like I said, it was essentially the sales were cut in half. So even though they sold more copies than the Engelbert Humperdinck single that uh, beat it out to number one, they didn't make the charts. And that also speaks volumes about the, the sales of this single, that it could cut the sales in half and still be number two is really something. Uh, Ringo actually commented on that at one point and said that the lack of it not hitting number one in the UK was a bit of a relief. Um, but in reality, like I said, they still sold more units. So it was only not number one on a technicality. It wasn't not number one because it was a, a subpar song. Um, and if you read the press reports from the day, it's comical. It's a number two hit. But the Beatles were so well known and so established as a number one hit machine that the press in, in England started writing them off as being done. It was the end of the Beatles. They, their bubble had burst. Their commercial viability had faded all because they got to number two on the charts. Um, meanwhile, CCR never got higher than number two and nobody ever questioned that. So it's funny the perspective that the media had in those days regarding this band's success. 
Uh, takes one through six of the song were recorded on December 29th, 1966, uh, with Paul by himself in the studio. He recorded several takes of the basic piano part and then added a second piano, which was fed through a guitar amp, and then a reverb was added to it, so it's already got a weird sound to it. And then he added a third piano, which was recorded at half speed. Um, and what that does is when you record it at half speed, every time you cut it in half, it goes down an octave. So when you play it up at regular speed, it is up an octave. But also the timbre of the instrument's uh, quality, pitch quality, changes. So even though you are just bringing it back up to where the piano should be, it does change the sound of of the instrument or the voice or whatever it is that you're adjusting the speed for. Um, after all those pianos, he threw on some Mellotron and a bunch of percussion. Almost everything was done in an un- unconventional way. With Even the Mellotron was run through a guitar amp. Um, and you can hear the results of this session on the 2017 Sgt. Pepper remix box. So the the one that says, I think it's take six, actually, um, that is just instrumental, that is the finished product from this uh, December 29th session. There's some cool elements to it. Some of it I don't think makes the the last bit. There's a lot of stuff in there that I don't hear in the final version. Um, but it's it's definitely a good ground groundwork for the song. The following evening, Paul and John recorded their vocal parts. Um, again recorded at slower speed this one wasn't quite half speed but it was at a slower speed so it it adjusted the quality of their voice when it was sped up Um, and I think that's where a lot of the brightness comes from this song is very bright even Paul's bass which is not super thin like it would be on the White Album um, it's still got that real thick traditionally Paul McCartney sounding bass but even that he's playing way up high on the neck even that sounds um, high and so a lot of this this brightness comes from the fact the variable speed recording the multiple layers of chordal instruments like this pianos and the mellotrons all that adds to this brightness that we get on this track then we flash forward to January 4th 1967 we're in a new year now. George adds his lead guitar. John adds another piano because that's what this song needed was a fourth piano part. And then Paul added another vocal overdub. The following night, Paul replaces that overdub with another new um, vocal. And it's on this night. That's all they did on Penny Lane. On January 5th, all they did was Paul recorded his new lead vocal. After that, they went on to work on what's probably the most fabled and mysterious recording of the Beatles' career, Carnival of Light, which was uh, essentially a live in-studio Revolution 9 that has never been released officially. I don't even think it's on bootlegs, but um, everybody knows about it. It's like 16 minutes long or something like that, and and it was it was done for an art gallery as an avant-garde piece of music um, and that's what they worked on the rest of the January 5th sessions and then the 9th of January they add four flutes two trumpets two piccolos and a flugelhorn to the track and this particular instrumentation I think is what makes this song distinctly British um, because it seems to me like every British sitcom that I've seen from the 60s and 70s the theme music to that song is basically this inf- instrumentation. It's all flutes and flugelhorns. And then if you listen to 
the uh, take six version on Sgt. Pepper, the remix, you hear these portions that are omitted from the final mix that really just they're dripping with British orchestration where they go bum 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 where they're doing these fall offs on the flugelhorns and it just if it was the opening uh uh theme song to are you being served i i wouldn't have been surprised like it's just it's incredibly english um on january 10th the next night they had sound effects and some backing vocals these are the the uh the scat vocals it harmonized that they added to this one um and then we're done right no there's more on the 12th of january they added more orchestration with two trumpets two oboes two english horns which is sort of like an oboe um, and a double bass and a lot of this stuff gets scrapped you hear this instrumentation on anthology 2 where they've got in place of the piccolo trumpet solo that we know for the song, they've got these oboes and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, they were right to replace it, in my opinion. And uh, now, January 17th, we finally get the piccolo trumpet. David Mason's brought in to record the legendary piccolo trumpet solo that was inspired by Paul had seen the Brandenburg Concerto on TV, uh, which features the piccolo trumpet trumpet. And so he was inspired to add it to this song. And like some of the other sessions we've talked about recently for Magical Mystery Tour, they bring in this inst instrumentalist with no prepared music. And so a lot of the session was spent trying out Paul's idea. Mason says he brought something like nine trumpets and they messed around with everything and uh, um, kind of wrote it in the studio. And he also dispels the myth that the trumpet solo was variable speed um, because some books will even tell you that the final mix was sped up just a hair to make it brighter. But um, he says that's not the case because he can still hit those notes or he said it, you know, back in the day. Mason did note, though, that uh, um, even though he's the only musician that played this night, January 17th was strictly devoted to recording David Mason's piccolo trumpet. He said all the Beatles were there. He said Paul was in charge, you know, because he was the one kind of writing it on the spot. But all the Beatles were in studio watching this go down, which I think is kind of cool because you uh, you get the impression sometimes that they weren't interested in some of this stuff. If they were orchestrating Paul's song, they weren't showing up. But they were all there, even though they weren't going to be used for anything that night. Um, and it's at this point that the song's finished. You know, they had to do some mixing, but the recording of the track is complete after seven sessions at Abbey Road. All of this while they're also working on Strawberry Fields and A Day in the Life and a handful of songs that will end up on Sgt. Pepper. And for my money, I don't think, and I'm, I don't think I'm taking a bold stance here, this is the greatest A-B ever made. Right, the Beatles threw some really great tracks on the flip sides. Um, so that's not unusual that there's a great song on the B side. But when you look at the other hits on the radio in early 1967 and where they had just left off at the end of 1966, it's really a huge leap forward for rock music. I mean, to give you a feel for what else was a hit at that time, to serve, uh, to serve I'll get it out, to serve with love, windy, I'm a believer, I think we're alone now, and release me, uh, which was Engelbert Humperdinck. Um, were all massive hits that year. So two songs like this coming out so early in 1967 was kind of major. 
Um, since this is a Kinks and Beatles podcast, I also would um, like to point out the many similarities between Penny Lane and Waterloo Sunset, which also came out in 1967, a few months later. And I don't think for a second that Ray was inspired by Penny Lane, um, even though Waterloo Sunset was written in a post-Penny Lane world. But there are a lot of similarities. Um, the obvious one is that they're both written around uh, English landmarks, Waterloo Station, Penny Lane. Um, they both alternate between a first-person and a third-person narrative, right? Penny Lane, we see a thing, blah, 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 and then Penny Lane is in my heart, in my eyes, whatever the words are, right? So he alternates from third-person, first-person. Waterloo Sunset does the same thing. We're talking about Terry and Julie, and then it goes to the first person for the chorus. Um and they all both alternate between uh, descending feels and ascending feels. Right? The beginning of Penny Lane, the bass line is going down. But then when we get to the chorus, it starts amping up. And Waterloo Sunset has that same kind of ebb and flow. And I just think it's interesting because they were the same years and because the subject matter is close. And there aren't many Beatles and Kinks songs that are close in subject matter in that regards. Um... I think of all the Beatles tracks, of all of them in the whole catalog, Penny Lane sounds different in their catalog. You know, it has that distinctly British feel that I talked about, which most of their work doesn't. Um, but also the recording, the quality of the recording, the sound quality of the recording, it's pretty far removed from anything else they would release. Even just the opening notes on Paul's bass sound different than what we're used to hearing from this band. Um, but a lot of Magical Mystery Tour feels that way because I think the same thing of Baby, You're a Rich Man. The intro to Baby, You're a Rich Man doesn't even sound like the Beatles to me. I mean, I love both these songs. It's not a knock. I'm just saying, like, they're pulling these ideas out of nowhere that they're not going to stick with for very long. They come out of nowhere, they do it, and then they leave. Um, to the musical theory part of it, I see the chat lighting up over here. I'll get to that later. Um, the song is written in the key of B major which is already an odd key for a vocal group, but I will allow it. And it opens with the basic one, two, five um, chord progression, then it repeats back to one. But when he gets to the end of the line, um, he's had the pleasure to know. When he gets to that, he lands on a B minor chord and then goes to a G major seven before hovering uh, around the five chord again with some, some suspensions and stuff. I wasn't planning on playing tonight, but... Uh, I'll run through it real quick. This is actually in the key of A because I don't have a capo and I don't feel like doing bar chords tonight. So we got a barber. Nothing crazy there. This is when he switches to the minor. And all the people that come and go stop and say... Uh, that suspension there he's doing... Um, is hovering over the five chord. So he's kind of switching back and forth between B major and B minor. Where it gets crazy is at the chorus. Because the bar prior to the chorus, he hits an E major chord and shifts the entire song down a whole step to A major. And we've talked before about how modulating down can sometimes deflate a song, especially a high energy tune like this. But Paul gets around it by where he's placing the melody. Okay, he places the anchor, it's called the tessitura which is like the average note. 
he he basically anchors the first verse on the third. So if we're in B major, the third is D. Penny Lane. Okay. Um, so that's D. But when he gets to the chorus, even though he's shifting down, he also shifts the tessitura to the fifth. So in A major, we're the 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 average tone is going to be E. That's where he's kind of basing the melody of the chorus. So even though the band is modulating down a whole step, the melody is actually lifting by a half step, which creates this contrary motion, but it also elevates the chorus away from the rest of the verse. And then to get back home, he ends on an F sharp chord and resolves back to B major. So it's not a crazy um, convoluted modulation he just says hey here's the dominant we're going back home and that's it it's un uh, unusual chord progression chord movement but it really works perfectly and shows an inventiveness that you just didn't see in many bands at that time i mean they're using suspended chords major sevenths these shifts between major and minor the whole step modulation all in one track that you know he's thrown every trick you have as a songwriter all at this one tune and but it never comes off as showy or desperate like he's intentionally writing a complicated tune between this track and strawberry fields it's hard to imagine a rock single with more non-rock sensibilities in their structure and execution from everything from the song forms to the harmony to the way it's produced all of it is is they're just pulling stuff from all over the place uh, and it's really incredible that's all I've got for this one. It's a great track. Paul's bass tone is exceptional on it. The layered pianos are a great effect. And thankfully, they opted out of some of the orchestrations that we talked about that you can hear on an Anthology 2. Um, and I think the 2017 remix of this track sounds even better than the original. Um, we have a poll going in the chat. Is Penny Lane a top-tier Beatles track? With three votes, two people said yes, one person said no. Uh, Crack and Wax says it's very moody. And then Roland, our friend Roland, hello Roland, says, Thanks for all you do. We really enjoy the breakdown. Sorry I don't have any additional input to the song, but I have a quick funny little anecdote about Penny Lane the Street. I was in Liverpool about 20 years ago and on a Beatles tour, obviously. The tour bus stopped at one of the Penny Lane street signs and the driver got out with a paint can and brush and uh, with a few brush strokes proceeded to repair the sign back to Penny Lane from the Benny Lane it had been vandalized into. He uh, sighed to himself and muttered about the this happening pretty much every day. Those darn kids. It's funny, that would happen every day, and then they're constantly having to repaint the wall outside of Abbey Road because all the Beatles fans go there and graffiti all over that. So that's Penny Lane for today. Um, thanks for everyone who uh, joined on the live video feed. I hope you all subscribe to the channel and um, keep tabs on the upcoming episodes that are scheduled. Uh, this is actually a double header. I'm going to take a few minutes here to reset everything up uh, for the next episode because I had to postpone last night's recording to prepare for a recording I did for somebody else's podcast this afternoon where I ran down my top 10 kink songs of all time. Um, so last night's live broadcast got postponed to tonight. And of course, um, make sure you follow all the social media stuff here, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Reddit, the subreddit, wherever you, you go. Uh, I will talk to you all soon. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope you have a great day, and I hope that you will uh, stay safe out there. Take care, everybody.